Welcome back to the Taproot Podcast, where we dig beneath the surface of a scientific publication to tell the stories behind the science. I'm Liz Haswell. And I'm Ivan Baxter. This season, we are discussing how to cultivate your career, and we've covered a lot of topics, from making values-based decisions to interviewing for grad school. In this episode, we talk about something we think everyone in the Taproot world can benefit from, paying attention to how you spend your time. Our guest, Holly Bick, tracked how she spent her time as a junior faculty member, and she learned some really interesting things, things that have allowed her to better focus on her research and on her work-life balance. We think this is a great topic for the new year, as everyone is trying to change habits and be more productive. And with that, let's get on with the episode. Today's guest is Dr. Holly Bick. She obtained her PhD in molecular phylogenetics at the University of Southampton, UK, where she was working with John Lambshead at the Natural History Museum. She completed a postdoctoral appointments with Kelly Thomas at the University of New Hampshire and Jonathan Eisen at UC Davis. In addition to her research, which we'll get into, Holly is heavily involved in science communication and the power of social media. She serves as associate editor for the popular marine blog, Deep Sea News, and maintains a very active presence on Twitter, something we will also get into. It was on Twitter where we saw recently that she announced she'll be moving her lab from UC Riverside to the University of Georgia. And apparently that move is happening right as we're recording. So we are extra grateful that she's found time in her busy schedule to talk with us. Today's paper is Shulky et al. Nematode-associated microbial taxa do not correlate with host phylogeny, geographic region, or feeding morphology in marine sediment habitats. It's from 2018 in Molecular Ecology. Holly, welcome to the Taproot, and can you give us a short summary of this paper? Yeah, thanks for having me. So this paper was the first paper to come out of my my new lab at UC Riverside. This paper was an invited submission for a host-associated microbiome special issue in molecular ecology. So essentially, when I was getting the lab up and running, we got invited to submit this, and we were super ambitious and tried to design a really cool study to do. So... I work on nematode worms. Um, I'm sort of more a broadly microbial ecologist, but the context of this paper is that we really don't know much about invertebrate microbiomes. And the smaller the invertebrate, the smaller the animal, the less is known because they just end up being really difficult to work with from a physical perspective as well as a, a genome sequencing perspective. So we decided to take this opportunity to basically ask some basic questions about nematode microbiomes. And with nematodes, you have all these species in the environment. You have this paradoxical high biodiversity in marine environments. So there's a lot of different nematode species. There's very closely related species that appear to coexist in space and time. And from uh, an evolutionary and ecological perspective, this is perplexing because we don't know how they can all be coexisting with so many individuals and so many close relatives in in, in, a, in an area. So one of the potential explanations for this is, is the microbiome. So the microbiome could be a mechanism for basically just allowing these species to coexist and reducing competition between closely related species. 
And because we don't know anything about the nematode microbiome, we decided to test this in a, a, as rigorous a way as possible by looking at nematode species across different geographic regions within the same sediment cores from the same geographic regions and also across different habitats. So the thinking is that if you have nematodes with similar mouthparts, existing in the same environment, you would expect that you would have some differentiation across the microbiome taxa, and that could potentially explain maybe they're selectively feeding on different microbes in the environment, even though they have the same mouthparts. So we decided to test this broadly with those different factors. And surprisingly to us, we found no correlation between nematode taxonomy, so the species, the geographic region, or the, the types of mouthparts and the microbiome. So no matter what we did, we couldn't find any evidence of selective feeding or niche partitioning in these nematode species. There's a couple different explanations. One is that maybe the microbiome is not a factor influencing species distributions and competition. Or the approach that we used, which was high-throughput sequencing using the ATNS ribosomal RNA gene. So this is a meta-barcoding approach where we're looking at a, a barcoding gene from, from all the species. Um, maybe that approach is not actually sensitive enough to detect differences in the microbiome. We are using ribosomal RNA genes to look at the barcode of both the nematodes and the bacteria. So this is just a DNA barcode that you can use to tell apart species. And so maybe that approach is not actually sensitive enough to detect differences in, in the bacterial species in the microbiome because the ribosomal RNA gene is super conserved. So that's, that's basically a summary. We expected to find these amazing patterns in nematode microbiomes across different species, and we ended up having a negative result. We managed to get published because it was a special issue. And I think I'm really, I'm actually really intrigued by the negative result because it gives us way more hypotheses to test down the line. So it, it you know, suggests basically the answer is not as simple as we thought. And, you know, if we... Yeah, public, publishing negative results is useful sometimes because it tells you, it rules something out that you weren't necessarily hoping to find. Yeah, I found that really unexpected when I was reading your paper. I was just assumed that there would be all of these amazing differences because that's really the sort of microbiome story you usually hear. <laughs> Right. And that's what gets published is usually, hey, there's some cool differences in the microbiomes. Here's a paper. But that's definitely not what we were finding. So it's it's interesting because the the more you read in microbial ecology, the, I, I think for me, the picture is emerging that um, genes matter way more than species. So one hypothesis that we have for nematodes is that maybe they're actually feeding on bacteria with specific metabolites instead of specific species. So we're trying to extend this work even further now. And we're, we're looking at doing metagenomic sequencing and metabolome profiling, just using these different approaches to kind of get around this, this difficulty with using the ribosomal RNA gene and the difficulty of using bacterial species to infer kind of ecosystem function and, and feeding preferences. So, I mean, that sounds like a good next step, except for the fact that you have to dig these things out of the soil from the bottom of the sea, which just kind of blows my mind. Is, I mean, can you talk a little bit of how you get all these soil samples? Because some of these are from like two kilometers down in in the water and you sampled the, the first figure of your paper is this map showing you've got stuff going from like the Arctic, Gulf of Mexico and off California. I mean, how do you even get all these samples? Yeah, the short answer is on a boat with very long cables. 
and equipment <laughs> that gets sent down all the way. Uh, so this is one of the reasons why there's not a lot of work on marine sediments. If you read the, the marine genomics literature, most people go on boats and they're collecting surface waters because it's much easier to just, you know, filter some water from the, the top of the ocean than it is to collect sediments from three miles down. Yeah, deep sea work is really expensive and really hard to get samples. So the way we designed this paper was actually just looking through my freezers and seeing what we had in the freezer already that we could design a study. So I mean, I've, I've basically been hoarding mud in the freezer for um, a decade, and it's come in handy when we need to, you know, design experiments or we need to get information from a certain geographic location. Usually when you're going out on a boat, you send down a um, ring of cores on a cable, and then it lands on the bottom of the mud, it sinks into the mud, and then they, they get closed off and, and sealed, and then they get brought up to the surface. So usually every deployment is between eight and 10 cores. So you're on a boat with 20 scientists, and there might be multiple people doing sediments work. So usually everyone is fighting to get these sediment cores. And I'm not always on the boat. So I was on the boat that collected the samples off the coast of Southern California, but the other samples in the Gulf of Mexico and from Alaska were graciously collected by my collaborators and FedExed on dry ice to my lab where I've been hoarding them in the freezer, like I said. So it's, it's really hard to get deep sea samples. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, the deep sea is less explored than the surface of the moon, I've heard said. I don't know that's accurate but it's definitely true that we have sampled a very very small proportion of the 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 mud on the bottom of the ocean i guess i'm really surprised that you don't have mud hoarder in your twitter bio <laughs> i should i'm gonna edit it now <laughs> <laughs> okay so you've got the this this work that you're describing that's the field work part of it which is really high tech for field work right and then you've also got this really high tech analysis on the other end, plus a bunch of, sounds like you're developing sort of new computational pipelines. I'm interested in how you fund both of those types of work and also how you recruit people who are capable in your lab of doing that. Financially, it's hard to get on boats unless you're the PI on the grant because usually if, if, you're, if you're running a ship and you're running a study, you want all your own students to go on the boat. So that's why I have a lot of people just try to collect me samples and ship me samples, but that's no guarantee that you're actually going to get samples. Ideally, you send someone out in the field and you do have people in the lab that are used to the field experience and used to going on cruises, but that's not a requirement. So I would say typically the people I tend to try to get in the lab are either people with disciplinary expertise uh, or people with a really strong computational background. And it's very rare to get someone who has really deep expertise in both. The strategy I try to use is everyone who comes into the lab has to get some degree of computational expertise and vice versa. If it's a person coming from a computational background, I would like them to get biology expertise so they understand the systems they're working with. But in practice, usually it's the biologists that want to come to my lab and they want to specifically develop the bioinformatics and the computational expertise because that's what's going to get them jobs and that's what's going to get them high impact papers. And then from a grant perspective, I think it's more black and white from grants because I tend to write grants that are either super biology focused and hypothesis driven and they're really just focused on the science. So those are the type of grants that would go to NSF or NIH, the you know the major science organizations. And then there's the other type of grant that I write in the lab, which is purely software development. 
So that's almost, it is more methods focused and developing these informatics pipelines. And we work on data visualization tools as well. And that's a completely different grant because you're not really testing hypotheses. You're just trying to develop the tools. And there's completely different programs that you would target for, for both of those grants. And depending on what gets funded, that also influences who you want to hire in the lab. Got it. When you get to the point where you have all this data for this paper, how did you pull it all together to, to write it? So deadlines help. Um, so we were up against the deadline because this was a special issue. And for special issues, you usually have to have all the papers submitted in a certain time frame so that they can all be peer reviewed and then revised and then basically accepted around the same time to be compiled together into the special issue. So because we were doing this new lab protocol, really labor intensive, completely untested method in the lab. And also I was, this was basically the first year which I was getting my lab up and running at UC Riverside. So it was also unpacking boxes and getting people trained and settling into a new university. We really came down to a time crunch with this paper. So we had got the data very late in the game, only a few months before we had to submit this paper. And the lab work was a hard part. So once we got the data, we, we pretty much knew what we were going to do and the bioinformatics pipelines were pretty easy, but writing is always hard and synthesizing the data and pulling it all together, especially when you don't have a clear story, like the negative results that we had was, was really tough. So to write it, you know, I essentially was trying to write it in Riverside over the summer. I think this was 2017, the summer of 2017, I was writing it. And my, um, my husband actually had a conference. He was going to ESA up in Portland, Oregon. And I sort of made a last minute decision to just book a ticket to go up with him and basically just lock myself away in the hotel room and write this paper during a really like intensive week long writing retreat, because we just, we had this hard deadline for the journal submission and we need to get it done. And, you know, when you're a new PI too, writing is the hardest part because your lab members aren't really necessarily trained in writing, especially the, the more junior career lab members like grad students. I mean, writing is just a skill that takes a really long time to develop. So I knew I was going to be the fastest writer and I had the vision for the paper in my head. So I just made the decision to kind of just leave, physically leave the lab and hunker down and write this paper. And I wrote the bulk of it basically in, in a week. I mean, we had most of the figures done at that point and I was going back and forth with the lab to ask questions and have them tweak figures and have them generate some results for me. But then I was just basically using that information on the fly to, to pull the paper together and get it submitted before the journal deadline. Yeah. So that that's a very sort of intentional decision about your time. And, and that's sort of a good entry into something we wanted to really talk to you because you wrote this amazing Twitter thread about something you started at the beginning of this year, which was tracking all of your time at work and what you were doing with it. And can you maybe talk us through the decision to do that? And then we want to talk to you a little bit more about sort of this sort of intentional process of, of thinking about how you spend your time as, as a PI. I've been reading a lot of, I call them life hacking books. I read the blog Life Hacker <laughs> a lot, and that's kind of where this comes from. I read a lot of books on productivity and time management, and actually a lot of articles like Harvard Business Review has some good articles about executive time and how to, how to manage things when you're super busy. And also the blog Dynamic Ecology has some really good posts on things like email. Megan Duffy has wrote some amazing posts on email management and time management. 
So I just went through this really intensive period over the last couple years reading all these life hacking books. And every time I read a book, I get super excited about the recommendations. And a lot of the books do recommend tracking your time. Tracking time I found in the past has been a really good way to just figure out where my time is going because I hate that feeling at the end of the week where you're just so busy and you know you got things done, but you're not quite sure what you got done and you have no obvious record of, of what's getting done. So I just wanted to get a little bit of a better sense of how I was actually spending my days. Um, and for junior faculty, I mean, the advice is always spend the bulk of your time on research and that's all you should be focusing on. You'll have teaching, you'll have service obligations, meetings, conferences, things like that, but you should really be focusing on research, research, which means publications and grants. And I just needed to figure out a way that I was spending more of my time focusing on publications and grants because I just was getting sucked into all these things. And I, I think it's pretty common for junior faculty to feel like they're just being overwhelmed with teaching and email. And one thing I was not prepared prepared for as a, a new faculty member was basically the fire hose of email that gets opened up. Like the minute you get your new institutional email, all of a sudden it's like all these email lists and all these admins contacting you and all these doodle polls. And you could literally just spend days. And I have spent days where I just, all I'm doing is responding to emails and it's not your priorities is other people's priorities. So from a stress management perspective, I just wanted to feel like, firstly, I was doing something that was going to count towards promotion and tenure and the meat of what I need to focus on, which is grants and publications. And that's basically writing. And then also I wanted to have some feel or feel like I had some control over my day to day life, because otherwise I was just being uh, feeling like I, I really was just doing things for other people, teaching service, stuff like that. That's not that's not what I want to do. That's what other people want me to do. And other people always want more from you than you have time available in a day. So the second thing I just wanted to, to get some control, feel like I had some control over my life by tracking how I spent my time and making that conscious effort jot down what I had done for the past few hours. So my planner lists things in 30 minute time blocks. So I would just kind of estimate the last two hours, what how I had spent each half an hour time block. And then I actually have been doing this manually because I found that's the easiest way for me to keep doing it. I, I experimented with apps um, for a while and I just felt like I wasn't really doing the time tracking in the apps because it's kind of out of sight, out of mind, and it's just one more digital thing to be stressed out about. So the, the paper yeah. planner, I just would write down how I spent my time. And then at the end of the week, I would go and I have a, a set of highlighters. So I have like four colors and I would just highlight the blocks of time um, and categorize them according to three lines. I think it's it's research, teaching, and admin. And I would just tally everything up manually and then put that into an Excel spreadsheet and then make the graphs that I posted about on the Twitter thread. And so I'm looking for, you know, proportions of my week spent on those categories. And then I'm also looking for trends over time. And my goal was not always, I wasn't always successful at this goal, but my goal was to increase the amount of time I'm spending on, on research in any given week. And you did this for like six weeks, is that right? I think I did it more for like six months. Um, I fell off the bandwagon yeah. a little bit over the summer with the move and everything else going on. Yeah, but see, I think that's super helpful. I I did this sort of uh, faculty boot camp a couple years ago that's run through the, the National Center for Faculty Diversity and Development and where they sort of give you life skills for being a faculty member. And one week they have you track your time. And I just set up my Apple Watch to give me a, a little buzz every 30 minutes. But I only did it for a week. And I feel like what I got out of that was not that. You're always like, well, that was a special week because there was this deadline or whatever. And to be able to do this for six months, I feel like you would have a lot of 
robust information. Yeah, for me, it's because I feel like there's always an excuse. There's always, oh, this week was different. But then if you keep using that excuse, you never really change your pattern. So for me, this was almost sort of like cognitive behavioral therapy, trying to identify um, patterns that were uh, detrimental to my career and trying to basically dynamically adapt to those patterns. And every week I might have a different thing that I'm trying, you know, maybe this week I'm going to get up early and just leave the house and sit at a coffee shop for two hours and set my timer for two hours. And I can only work on writing projects when I'm at that coffee shop. And maybe the next week I try to set an hour for emails. So I'm doing emails between like 12 and 1 p.m. And I know I'm going to do emails so I don't have to stress about them in the morning and I can focus on deep work, writing projects in the morning. And every week I would try to try something different with that. And then I would try to reflect back on what's working, what's not working. Some weeks I find travel really disrupts me. It gets me out of, it just, you know, it's disruptive enough from packing and jet lag and things that get added or delayed on your to-do list. Uh, it, it takes yeah. a little while to recover from traveling. So that's another thing I'm trying to figure mm-hmm. out. How do I recover better from travel? And also, how do I cut down my travel more? Because I feel like I've just been traveling too much the past couple of years, and I just need to be more conscious about types of invitations that I accept. Yeah, I like how you are talking about it as like this dynamic thing. I was I had been thinking sort of this Laura Vanderkam type deal where you you track for six months and then you analyze the data and then you see who you are, right? But I like how you're like on a weekly basis looking at what's happening and changing it. Like you said, like biofeedback. I think that's really interesting. But then, So then how are you tracking things like what you want on the other side, which is, so you're doing a really good job of quantifying sort of what your time outputs are, but then what are you using to evaluate what you want to be changing, which is more papers, more grants, and feeling more calm? Right. So I have a separate, just a basic one page Word document where I'm tracking what I accomplished. And that doesn't necessarily mean success. So the grant proposal doesn't Mm -hmm. have to get funded, but I have to submit it Mm -hmm. because um, in tenure decisions, from what I understand, a lot of times they are quantifying your effort on things. And they know that success is fleeting and you have to write a lot of grants to succeed. So just the evidence of effort is a good thing to be tracking in in tenure and promotion. Applications is a little more cut or dry because you do need to get those published. But at least with grants, you submit five grant applications and you know you've at least been putting the work in. So, and things with fellowship deadlines or any sort of little applications, I, I track all of that. I try to always relate it back to grants and publications. So that's my main efforts that I'm, I'm tracking. And like I said, I just put it down on a one pager. So as I complete things, reflecting on my time management on a weekly basis, but I'm also, it's more like a monthly basis. I'm sort of sitting down and saying, okay, what are the big big rocks that I want to get out the door this this year. And this is a term from the um, actually the National Center for Faculty Diversity. They have these Monday motivator emails that I've been reading religiously every Monday. And they're always saying, you got to schedule in the big rocks first, and that's your writing time and grants and publications. And that's where I set my goals. So I set my goals around the big things. And then I try to t- track the successes of the big things. Because I mean, I don't try to be too granular in tracking like how many emails I send or how many doodle polls I fill out because it's just like a normal part of the job and it doesn't take that long for each task. But the big tasks that require this constant dedicated effort and the ones where you're most likely to get demotivated and have imposter syndrome or just feel like you're you're, you're never going to finish, that's that's really what you want to just keep pushing at. It's it's like running a marathon. I'm looking at the, the tracking and, and, and certainly early on you were doing 
20 to 30 hours a week on admin and service. What was really pulling you into the, that doing that much admin service work as you were starting this process? So I'm not really sure. It's a combination of internal and external factors. So one is just stress. I have a tendency to, I think we all do, when we're stressed, we try to get quick wins and a quick win is too many email that you can send. So this, this, this kind of this sense of busyness that you're, oh, I'm doing something, so I must be productive, but it's not the right kind of busyness. So I, I do feel like during periods of stress, I tend to fixate more on the easy things to deal with. And I kind of like procrastinate on the big important things like grants and publications, especially where I feel like a lot of my self-worth as a scientist is inherently intertwined with the papers I publish or the grants that get funded. And uh, it can be really demotivating. If you're always climbing this hill and you're never getting to the top with grants and publications and junior faculty life is just not pleasant in this day and age with all the things that you have to manage. So it's very easy to just lose track of the important things that you should be doing, both from a like time management and from an emotional perspective. And from external factors, I mean, this was one of the reasons that I really considered and ultimately accepted the institutional move because I'm in a small department, which means that there's higher service load per person in the department. I felt like there, the at the institution, there weren't really the resources available for me to minimize the amount of time that I spent on admin and service. So I just felt like there was a huge burden on junior faculty at UC Riverside, teaching and service and admin and... It was just really hard to escape that with the departmental situation and the um, just the university structure. It was kind of like junior faculty just shoulder a big burden. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that junior faculty just aren't prepared for in general is just how much time suck these sort of administrative. How does the lab? How do I get my lab to function? Things take of your time, and even I think as you improved throughout it, you're still spending. 10 to 20 hours a week or something in the, in the second half of your six months. And, and, and that's, that, that sounds like a great win, but that's still a, a large chunk of your weekly time. Yeah. And it's also, sometimes you can't control it too, because I, so what I, what I try to do personally is I always try to schedule meetings in the afternoon because mornings I see as my time. So I like to just get up and start writing not even check emails. And actually I don't, I use a tool called batched inbox, which delays my emails until noontime. So I, they basically, any emails I get, get hidden in a secret folder. And then at noontime, they get dumped into my inbox. And that's a kind of behavioral strategy for me to stop just obsessively checking my emails because nothing's being delivered in the morning. And then I can just focus on writing time. But I do try to schedule my meetings in the afternoons and I try to schedule them back to back so that I have four hours of meetings. I would say that for junior faculty, that's not always possible. So if you're teaching, you don't have control over your teaching schedule. If you're having to prep new lectures, you have to put in that time whenever you can find it. Sometimes faculty meetings get scheduled first thing in the morning. And when that happens, I just feel like I, I just my brain starts the day off on the wrong foot. And I, I have trouble focusing on writing when I have meetings or service things to do first thing in the morning. But sometimes that's just out of your control. You know, you have to kind of go with the flow. So some weeks I feel like that was worse than others. And I was teaching a pretty intensive course at the beginning of the year too. Um, I was teaching by myself a course that met three hours a week, three times a week. And I had to do all the lecture prep. I was basically prepping new lectures. I was designing uh, lab experiments and that. So 
I, I can't remember what my time tracking looked like, but at the beginning of the year, January through March anyway, I was just putting a lot of time towards teaching and teaching related admin duties. It doesn't get any better. It's not like this is all, you know, young faculty and then you'll figure it out. And suddenly when you're a senior faculty, you don't spend all your time in meetings and answering email because it only gets worse. I think you find ways to manage it better and also to let things go and just be more selective about what you care about. Sometimes you have some service that you have to do and it's just like it's an emotional suck as well as a time suck and it's just impacts your productivity because then you come out of that service commitment and you just feel so like down in the dumps. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a, a great lesson and I wish I was better at it because, you know, it, it, it's totally true. The the service things that I do that I, that I don't like, it, it even like the request to fill out a doodle poll for those and I just like, oh, I don't want to do that. Oh, mm -hmm. and so I spend five or 10 minutes just feeling like grumpy about that before I actually do it. So one of the things that really jumped out to me, and I think this is a really valuable lesson that I think that people should internalize, is uh, you talked about, you, know, you also were tracking just the total time you spent at work, which varied from a low of 30 a couple weeks, but above 50 on some weeks. And you said that was brutal. Can you tell us you know, a little bit more about what you mean by that? And I think it's super interesting because what you're, you're, you're being really honest here. I think a lot of people would estimate, I mean, I think you would be hard pressed to find an academic who would admit to working less than 50 hours a week, right? Because you're not supposed to only work 40. But I think when if we all tracked it, we would probably be right around what, what you're doing in terms of what we're even capable of. And I think there are studies that have shown that people overestimate how much they work a week. People who aren't tracking, they overestimate by five, six, seven, ten 10 hours. Oh, yeah, I think everyone who doesn't track overestimates their time. And less less time spent at work is not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, I think if you're, if you only did writing for 30 hours a week, you know, say 9am 9, 9 to 3pm every day, I mean, I personally, I could probably write a pulp paper in a week or two, um, if that's all I had to worry about, and also all I had to stress about. But I would say in terms of work weeks varying, I mean, they vary according to deadlines. And when I say that a 50 hour work week was brutal, I mean, it's essentially because I don't get a weekend on those weeks. And for me, if I don't have at least one day where I don't have to check emails or, or, or think about science, I mean, if, if I lose that day during a week, I just, my stress level increases, just get really burnt out. Um, I can barely function and it, imp it impacts things like how like the food that I eat and whether or not I exercise and when you cut out things that are habits that are good for you that also impacts your stress level and so this th those those 50 hour weeks were just brutal on me because I just felt like I couldn't exercise because I was too stressed and I'm also like at work on a Sunday morning and I'd rather be sitting in bed reading my book particularly after those really intensive weeks where I work 50 hours the week after tends to be much more low-key so I try to like you know, maybe finish up earlier in the afternoon, make sure I'm going to exercise in the evenings or, you know, treating myself to like extended lunch breaks with some good food or sleeping in a little bit and, and reading a book. Yeah, I, I, I think everything you're saying uh, resonates so much with my experiences. One of the things that's hard that I think you seem really extra good at is just being really self-aware and also having like this self-control to say, 
Yes, I just got back from a trip. Yes, I have this big pile of work, but I know I'm going to pay the price if I just dive right into it. So I'm going to take things slow today. Have you always been this kind of person? Like, can you remember being like a sixth grader and making sure that you spread your homework over like the weekend or something? Or is this something you sort of developed as as a PI? I think I was always the type of person that never liked to go down to the wire. So I was the type of person um, in college where I would submit my paper like two days ahead of time, just so I had a, a day of contingency and uh, an extra day just to relax. I, I never like, I wasn't this like 4.55 and I'm printing my paper off at the printer that's due at 5 p.m. type of person. It just does not work with my like my stress levels. But being a PI, that's not always feasible to be that organized. I, like That would be my ultimate goal. If I could submit a grant two days before the deadline, I would love to be that person. But currently, I am not that person. My current goal is to be less of a binge writer because I am. I have basically have been going down to the wire on too many things the past couple of years, and it is not good for my health and my stress level. And, and that's what I mean about it takes this recovery time afterwards because whenever I'm down to the wire, clicking that button to submit the grant five minutes before it's due, it just like does horrible things to my stress the week after. So most of the most of the time tracking and the self-awareness is to feel like I have a better quality of life. So Holly, you're very self-aware. You're thinking a lot about how things are working for you. You must have, I mean, if it's, you started in 2016 and we're in 2019 and you are moving your lab, that means probably after two years, you decided that it was time to go on the market and find a different job. And that's a very early time to decide that. Uh, we've we've actually been talking a lot in this season about people who had a big decision forced on them by external circumstances. Can you talk us through the decision to go out on the market? What, what made you actually decide it was time to, to look for something else? Sure. So I, I didn't actually go on the job market. I wasn't actively looking for jobs. I was invited to give a seminar at the University of Georgia as part of their bioinformatics seminar series. And the position that they had was a joint appointment between the Department of Marine Sciences and the Institute of Bioinformatics. And they were specifically recruiting a marine microbiome scientist who also did data visualization. So literally the job ad they had open was exactly what I do. It's like they had written it for me, which is probably why we had a, I had a bunch of people come up to me after and encourage me to submit my materials and actually really, I really struggled with whether or not to even apply for the job because whenever you decide to do something, you have to be aware of the time commitment. And I knew even just updating my application materials and submitting them to the, the search would be like, like, like a big time suck. Essentially, I ended up just submitting my materials and saying like, I'll just put it into the universe and see what happens. I'm not going to get my hopes up about anything. And I don't even know if I want to move to Georgia because I've never lived in the South and you know, things progressed forward. I got invited for an interview in person. I pulled out all the stops for that. So that was one of my 50 hour weeks, I think, in the beginning of the year. And I gave my job seminar. I thought it went really well. And then I ended up, you know, after a couple tense months of not knowing what's going to happen, I, I ended up getting an offer for the position. And then we negotiated a retention offer with UC Riverside. So I was really back and forth about whether or not we wanted to move because it was a big decision. And Ultimately, we decided to move, and the reason was really more focused on the research vision, I would say. So there's a departmental fit. And then also personal decisions play a role in this too. Southern California is very 
traffic heavy and you, cars and traffic basically dictate your life there in a way that we weren't anticipating when we moved there. And Athens just is a small college town. It has a much, it's much more affordable. So that definitely played a role in the decision. And then the, the, the last component is my husband's also a scientist. So we have the classical two body problem and wherever we live, we want to make sure both of us are happy. And from a professional standpoint, Georgia just offered a lot more opportunities for both of, both of us to be successful in our careers. Well, what I think is that is interesting is something that you didn't mention was the logistics, the slowdown and the lack of productivity that comes with a move. Like there's going to be a lag period while you move. And it seemed like you're were taking a bit of a longer view. Yeah, and that was that was a factor. But honestly, all my mentors that I talked to said I shouldn't worry about that too much. I mean, I shouldn't be complacent. But I do get a teaching relief, so I'm essentially not teaching mm-hmm. until fall of 2020. So I, I basically have a year off of teaching, and I feel like because teaching is such a, a big time suck, it's I'm gonna get up and running hopefully quicker. And also, I know how to run a lab. Or I know I would say I know how to run a lab, but I have a better idea of what's mm-hmm. required to run a lab. So I definitely think in terms of setting up a lab, there's much less decision fatigue this time. I've sort of have this like checklist of things that we have to do. And I'm much more self-assured about how we get up and running in Georgia. So it's less of a learning curve the second time around. I will have to learn the paperwork stuff is different at every institution, but we have a lot of manuscripts in the pipeline and we've designed the work this year to basically be such that we have a lot of data in hand right now. So while we're waiting on all the equipment to get delivered, we're just going to try and write as many manuscripts as possible and get those at the door while we're setting up the wet lab side of things. But yeah, we drove cross country and that was five days. We drove our car uh, cross country. So yeah, there were definitely, there's definitely periods of time over the last couple months where I have gotten zero science done in a week, apart from frantically checking the emails on my iPhone. Right. right. And you currently get two institutions of email instead of just one. Oh, yeah. Double the joy right now. <laughs> yeah, one's winding down. Yeah, so I have urgent things to wind down my grants and my um, my lab at UC Riverside. Now I have like ramping up of emails trying to get things started at Georgia in the run up to my, my hiring date. Well, congratulations on that move. Something that we like to have all of our guests do sort of towards the end of our conversation is to talk about what advice they would give to younger people, to trainees, to people who are still coming up. And I think people would be really interested to hear what you would suggest someone might do who's a graduate student, who's a postdoc, to start to get a handle on time management, where their time is going. And I would also be interested in your advice about writing for those populations. I would say um, some of the best advice I could give is that it's important for early career researchers to understand how long things take and also be okay with the fact that some things are just going to take way longer than you expect. And I, I think the more you kind of take note of how long something takes, the better you get at estimating time. And so when I try to estimate time, I don't estimate in terms of, oh, write a manuscript, that'll take 60 hours. I break it down into kind of small tasks associated with that manuscript. So prep figure A, write method section, finish references, things like that. I have a a better idea of the subtasks for that manuscript. So I might block off a couple weeks and then look at the tasks that I have and estimate the kind of 
time and then try to sketch out some semblance of a schedule for each of those tasks. And I also, I don't know, if, I always feel like this is lazy, but I feel like it's really effective. I do the easiest things first. So when I wake up in the mornings and I'm gonna sit down and write and I'm really just not feeling it and I'm tired, I'll start by doing references or something, something just to get started and I'll set a timer for five minutes. And often you'll find that once you start, you're into it and those five minutes pass, then you have inertia to kind of keep going and, and keep doing maybe something even in a little bit more mentally intensive, like switching over to the method section writing. So I think it's important for you to kind of understand personally how, how much time something takes for you and then also figure out what works best for your body. So I'm a morning person. I write best in the morning. I try to get most of my writing done before noontime. I feel like when I eat lunch, then I just have this afternoon slump. I can sometimes write emails or I can do like basic tasks, but definitely I'm not in the mindset to do like really intensive writing in the afternoons most days. But some people are evening people or night people. So if you write best between 10 p.m. and midnight, you know that about your body and don't feel bad about it just because other people work better in the morning. You should maximize your energy, not your time. And um, that's gonna be different for every person, but just knowing what works and learning those strategies to try to break down tasks into more manageable little snippets. There are two things that I've really found have increased my productivity or just even when they don't increase your productivity because you're having a bad day or week, they make you feel better about how you're managing your time. Yeah, just like any sort of conscious control. And I, one thing that I've heard people say before is to experiment, which you sort of described doing as well. Is like, you don't have to say, I'm making this huge change. You can just say, I'm just going to try only writing in the mornings, or I'm going to try delaying email until noon, or I'm going to, you know, just try it for a week and see how it goes. And, and then you can decide to go back to your old ways if you want. That's always a helpful mindset, I think. Yeah. And something else, which I didn't really talk about, but I do every week I do a weekly review. So I actually have a paper worksheet that I fill out that makes me list my, my wins and my losses and how I can fix things for next week. So this is where the, like, just uh, dedicated time for self-reflection comes in because I think for me writing things down it it legitimizes it in a way that if I'm just casually thinking about something on the way to the bus stop I'm just I'm sort of it's a fleeting thought but you don't really kind of capture it in a way that you'll make a change but actually having to sit down with a piece of paper that you fill out every week has uh, done wonders for just time management and setting goals and uh, just looking back on what works and what doesn't and if something's not working even if there's 50 blog posts that say this is the best thing ever. If it doesn't work for you, then you you know, you know don't have to do that. You have to find something that works for you. And I think that's going to be different for every person. So yeah, just trying to be self-aware in general, I think is, is a good thing. And trying to do that on a regular basis, weekly, monthly, quarterly, um, annually, having some idea of your goals and then tracking progress towards those goals. And then just trying to, if, if you don't meet your goals, then just trying to ask yourself, why are you not meeting them? It's a really good thing. And like, like I mentioned previously, those Monday motivator emails from the, the National Center for Faculty Diversity are like pretty awesome at giving you some concrete things that you can try. And they're written by an academic. And I think she's pretty upfront about her own vices and her own thought patterns. So it, it makes you feel better that some of these things that you're experiencing are pretty common in academia and you're not you're not alone and feeling demotivated and unable to write. Well, Holly, this has been phenomenal and awesome. And I am going to put 
five minutes in my planner to just sit here and think about how awesome this has been. But before we do that, before we do that, can you tell people how they can reach you uh, if they want to, if they have questions, they want to follow up on some of the things that you've talked about? Yeah. So in keeping with the Twitter theme of this podcast, uh, I'm on Twitter at Holly Bick, H-O-L-L-Y-B-I-K. And it'd be great to get a Twitter discussion going about this because I'm always curious about other people's strategies and uh, ideas for time management. And Liz, uh, how can people uh, reach you? You can find me on Twitter at at E Haswell. Ivan? You can find me on Twitter at Baxter Twee, that's T-W-I. And you can find the podcast on Twitter at Taproot Podcast. And with that, because mm-hmm. I think this might be the last episode of the season, and with that, yes. and with that, thank you so much, Holly. Uh, we really appreciate it. Yeah, no worries. Thank you so much. This was fun. Thanks, Holly. It was really inspiring to hear about all the ways you are consciously designing your day. I love it. The Taproot is brought to you by the American Society of Plant Biologists and the Plant A website. It is co-hosted and edited by Ivan Baxter and Liz Haswell and produced by Mary Williams and Katie Rogers. We get editing help from Katie Rogers. We are very excited to have Joe Stormer help us out with transcripts for season four. If you like this episode, tell your friends and colleagues and be sure to subscribe on your iTunes or in your podcast player of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll bring you another story behind the science in two